Kia ora. Welcome to this episode in Season 3 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, Church Minister, Chaplain and Radio Broadcaster. Recovering is a Media Chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally. In this episode, I talked with New Zealand Herald senior writer Simon Wilson. Simon's career in media and journalism spans over 35 years. After beginning in the book publishing world, he has worked as editor for Consumer Magazine, Cuisine and Metro before shifting predominantly to writing with the Herald. In his time, particularly with Consumer and Metro, Simon was involved in the publishing of stories that have had a solid real-world impact. From changing the conversation around sudden infant death syndrome in the 90s, to being the editor at Metro overseeing John Stevenson's expose of how the New Zealand SAS contravened the Geneva Convention during their time in Afghanistan. Whilst we touch on these stories in the conversation, they weren't the focus. Instead, we went more personal delving into Simon's recently published Cancer Diaries. Simon, it's a pleasure to have you in our little studio here in Penrose in Auckland. Really appreciate you taking some time out. Yeah, kia ora Frank, it's a pleasure to be here. You've had a, a solid career now, Simon, uh, I think over 35 years in, in journalism. <laughs> so you, you come from a time where journalism, to a degree, looked quite different from what it, what it does now. Uh, so talk me through, as most people do when they first start out their conversations, talk me through how you got into journalism. So I, I've had an un, un, I got into journalism in an unusual way um, at school. I was involved in school newspaper, that sort of thing, at university. I became the editor of the student newspaper, Salient, because I went to Victoria University in Wellington. Um, That was a long time ago. So I always had that interest, and I watched the mainstream media at the time. I watched how newspapers worked, sitting at Salient, thinking, well, we're trying to do it differently. Um, I always used to have a thing that there is a difference between uh, being impartial and being objective. Uh, Being impartial meaning you're, you're not taking a position, you're going to present both sides, which is pretty standard way that a lot of media will say they present the world and being objective is to try and find what's really going on and report that those things get blurred but at salient I always thought there's a difference between those two mm. if you take an issue like climate change it's just presenting both sides is nonsensical the science is settled and that's not the issue anymore being objective is to be able to say that that's um, a, can I just say that's a really important distinction to make because a lot of people when they talk about what they want from journalism talk about impartiality yes. but but not all not all arguments are equal and opposite uh, there's a and climate change is a perfect example the world swings very much the science swings very much in one direction so to pose them as equal and opposite arguments doesn't present the truth it's also you've also got to know what kind of issue you're dealing with um, as you say I think climate change is a set is settled um, I think there are lots of other things we argue about where it's not settled mm. and, and if you're 
trying to be objective, you've got to recognise that, that just because it's, you, you might believe on one side of the equation doesn't mean you're necessarily right. Um, and of course, the whole process of how our scientific knowledge of the world expands is through trial and error, is through testing propositions, is through recognising that this looks like the best explanation of how things are at this point, but there might be a better one. You've always got to be open to that idea. Anyway, to go back to your question, how did I get into journalism? Um, after university, I eventually got into book publishing. Ah. And I was a book editor yep. uh, at the old firm of A.H. and A.W. Reed in Wellington. Uh, so I learnt there for a few years. Of, I got a very solid grounding in uh, how to use grammar properly, uh, how to tell stories well, uh, how to um, make the language work, uh, and respect for facts and, and all the rest. Um, and from there, I went to the listener. The company I worked for in books went to Auckland. I didn't want to go, so I went to the listener as a sub-editor. I rose up the ranks of sub-editing, became chief sub-editor. Who That's that's the job where you basically organise the work. Um, and I was a columnist there as well, writing in the film and television area. And uh, eventually the listener went to Auckland, and I still didn't want to go. <laughs> Uh, so I went to a consumer magazine. I was the editor of Consumer for 12 years. That's still in Wellington, uh, but I got a call from Auckland one day, uh, would you like to apply for the job of editor of Cuisine, uh, the food magazine in Auckland? And, you know, my wife and I had always thought one of us will take us overseas to work at some point, and we, each of us thought it might be the other person. <laughs> and it never happened. So we said, yes, OK, let's make this shift. This, this is a career jump. This, is, this, mm. this will be exciting. Uh, took the kids, um, who were then intermediate school and high school, moved to Auckland. Now, I mean, I had to go through a selection process yeah. to get that job, of course, but um, moved to Auckland. Uh, I was editor of uh, Cuisine for nearly three years. After that, I freelanced for a bit and then went to Metro Magazine as a writer, a journalist, became editor of that, edited that for five years. Um, when that finished, I was editor-at-large and then went to the spin-off for a year. That was 2017, so mm. it was an election year. It was a good time to be working there. And after that, uh, I went to the Herald. So I've been at the Herald since 2018 into my sixth year there now. I'm a, uh, my title is a senior writer. Um, I do uh, feature writing. I do a lot of column writing. Um, I write about urban affairs, climate action, um, transport, uh, housing, uh, and a whole lot of related political issues. Uh, and I do some news coverage as well. Mm. And you're, you're writing stuff that often shapes the news. Uh, it's stuff that gets noticed. I like to think that can be true. <laughs> you know, like a number of my colleagues at, at the Herald and elsewhere, you, you work your sources hard and you try to find out what's going on uh, behind those closed doors um, and uh, and report it and you try to work out what the the, the deeper issues are. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, For me now, um, the central issue in my work, I tell myself, is how to... How do you make climate change something people want to read about and learn more about and do something about? Mm. Because most of my readers already get it. Yeah, most people at the Herald, reading the Herald, I think, probably get it. Yeah, but there's a difference between getting it and wanting to read the article yeah, or or actually changing you the way you live. Yeah, so the challenge is to make that a something that's interesting and exciting and worth reading. Mm. I always think in, in my work... 
I want people to finish reading something and think I'm really pleased I read that, I enjoyed reading that, I'm, I've got something from it, I've got value from it, and then for them to think something else, I always want them to think, and I must tell other people to read it too. Mm. Yeah. I don't know how often that happens. <laughs> Possibly not very often at all. Uh, but that's that's the idea. It's a fantastic approach. How is the shift going from predominantly editing and having the yeah. editor role into now regular writing? Yeah, so it, it's been difficult. Um, I've always tried to write. Um, back at Consumer, I did a lot of heavy rewriting. Our staff weren't journalists. They were uh, technical people who knew about fridges and washing machines and we had an economist and we had a, um, a food scientist and people who I learned an immense amount from and I'd like to think that they learned a bit about writing from me as well. Yeah. So I was heavily on that. And then at Metro, um, I wrote, I was a writing editor. Metro magazine mm. was founded in 1981 by the great Warwick Roger, uh, who was himself a writing editor. Uh, he, he always wrote for that magazine and I revived and wanted to continue that tradition. Um, so I wrote quite a lot uh, for the magazine. And, you know, during my time there, um, I was there for at Metro as a writer and then editor for, I think, nine years. Um, every year there'd be some more staff cuts because the company was just, this is what media is. And we'd always think, well, at least they can't cut any more. And then, you know, a year later, then they would again. You know, when I started there, there were six staff writers. By the time I finished, I had two part-timers. Wow. Um, so Plus me, so yeah, I, I wrote. <laughs> um, and it's it's difficult. It's a tension. Um, and I miss being an editor. I, I, I look at other publications, including the one I work for, and think, oh, I, I could do something about that. And I, I've got ideas about how to do that. Mm. Um but I really like writing. I like that being the thing that I can focus on um, and spend my time doing. Yeah. And a good part of that is having the time to sit in the corner of a room watching a meeting or go to an event. And you can't do so much of that when you're editing because you're much more stuck to your desk. Yeah, that's true. I think you're one of the first editors I've sat down with and been able to have this conversation. So there's aspects of it that I'm really interested in, particularly dealing with some of the controversy and wrangling other journalists and their ideas as well. Like I think about uh, your time at Consumer Magazine when the uh, all the controversy was around uh, cot debts yes. and what you had to wrangle there. I think about John Stevenson and the work at Metro with his stuff on Afghanistan. That was hugely controversial at the time. And those are, those are big issues to have to wrangle through where you're not necessarily the primary writer. That's right, that's right. So J- Jim Sprott, um, the chemist at uh, when I was at Consumer, uh, back in the 90s there were, he had a theory that uh, the reason for sudden infant death uh, or cot deaths uh, was that babies were sleeping the wrong way and he had a mattress cover mm. that would solve the problem. And he had a lot of credibility. He was, he'd done a lot of great work in New Zealand, that man. He was the man who showed that the police had planted evidence in the Arthur Allen Thomas uh, trials. You know, so he was a bit of a national hero, and in the 90s, whenever there was another uh, cot death, uh, he'd get on the media and he'd be talking about the value of his mattresses, and we thought uh, he was wrong. Uh, So we did a lot of research. We had an expert on our staff uh, in the field, and she did a lot of research uh, working with experts from the universities, uh, and we were able to demonstrate that he was wrong, that... um, about that, uh, went through a number of legal threats. Uh, mm. One of the wonderful things about working at Consumer <laughs> is if you're right, you're going to publish. Um, not 
picking on um, the the vulnerable, but um, punching up. You know, if if, mm. you, if if there are powerful people taking who are fraudulent or ripping people off or uh, making false claims or all the rest, uh, consumer will go after you. Um, and we did. Mm. Um, and so that kind of stopped. And, and uh, I like to think we played an instrumental role in discrediting that theory of his, you know, putting the science of looking after babies onto mm. a much um, firmer keel. And the value of it for me was that it meant that parents whose babies had died didn't have to feel guilty that they'd done the wrong thing. Yeah, it's really, really important work. I mean, they're literally life and death yeah, work, exactly. uh, an issue like that. I would imagine, too, you would have had your controversies at Salient Magazine, but I could imagine that, that an experience like that brings out the people who want to have a go as well, which looks quite different in the 90s from what it does now. But I would imagine you were having to weather some stuff coming at you. Yes, yes, we, we did. Um, legal threats are fascinating. I, I mean, I remember once taking a, a call from a QC just before Christmas uh, who basically had called me, this was that consumer, basically had called me to see if he could just frighten me off you know, because he was a QC. You know, <laughs> and it became clear to him that that wasn't going to happen. And that just went away. Yeah, it, was, it was a nice little moment, nice little Christmas present <laughs> there, actually. He's still around. <laughs> You know, you mentioned John Stevenson before at Metro. John uh, is an extraordinary journalist, uh, He and he's particularly experienced in Afghanistan and uh, the Middle East and Iraq in particular. Um, he's very well connected. He's scrupulous with his research and his sources, uh, and very careful also about protecting you know, people and making sure that his work doesn't casually put people's lives into danger. His story that we published was an enormous thing mm. uh, about how the New Zealand SAS had been in breach of the Geneva Convention in regard to the treatment of prisoners. Um, and New Zealand Defence Force didn't like that at all. The national government at the time didn't like that, but it had also um, Labour was implicit in it as well because it had gone complicit in it because it had gone back earlier. Um, he brought it to me. Um, we worked and worked and worked on it. Um, it, was, it was he wrote, I think, from memory, eighteen thousand words. We got it down to something over eight uh, to publish. Um, the company supported us doing that. I like to think the the practice stopped. Uh, mm. We weren't the only SA. We weren't the only special services. The only forces in Afghanistan doing it. Um, but uh, I don't think those things were uh, continued in the way they were. Yeah, I like to think that had a real uh, made a real difference, and you know that goes to the issue of if you're representing the good guys in a war, and you have to believe you are, you've got to be the good guys. Yeah, if you're mm. not going to be the good guys, then uh, what's the point? Yeah, the Geneva Convention exists for a reason. It is a very valuable document uh, in our in world history. Uh, and we need to abide by it. Mm, I agree. It, take, it takes some courage, though, to print an article like that. It As does. an editor, to make the call and to say you're going to back your journalist in it because our SAS, uh, you've got the New Zealand Defence Force and the government wanting to protect themselves, but we also, as a nation, view our SAS as, as almost saintly, sacrosanct. We do. We do. We do. The Apiatas and so mm. on, they are, they are heroes. And in so many ways, that rightly they're heroes. Agreed. Um, which doesn't mean that they're above scrutiny. Mm. It doesn't mean all of them are doing the right things. Um, and it doesn't mean, in particular, that the 
head, the Defence Force uh, Central Command and the government in turn uh, should be off the hook for what they do. Um, and, you know, when a magazine like Metro and journalists like John Stevenson are exposing wrongdoing, the target isn't that soldier on the ground. The target is the government that allows it to happen, knows it happens, and allows it to continue. Yeah, so that's why you're doing it. Yeah. So your stress levels then, before you, <laughs> before you hit print, what did your stress levels look well, like with stories funny. like that? And I, I tell you with that one also, we, we broke one of the normal rules of publishing, uh, we didn't go to the government and say, this is everything we've got and we need your answer on it. Yeah. We backed the research, we backed that we had the right story, but we knew that the government would have the power, probably informally, you know, to shut us down, to shut the story down. And that's really about uh, the relationships um, that happen in, in um, private clubs and, and uh, uh, between the corporate leaders and, and government but uh, so we we were very careful uh, that we didn't give the government the ability to just uh, make the whole thing go away uh, which is not something you can always do and not something you always should do um, but in that case we, we, we made that call yeah, bold move. There are so many stories in your career that we could uh, could have just unpacked as your main one, but neither none of those stories are the main one that we're going to talk about. <laughs> so, and this this is I'm glad you chose this one because this one is personal. Talk us through what you most want to have a chat about. Well, uh, the startling thing for me when I started at the Herald, I, I took the job at the end of 2017, and was due to start in mid January after a nice summer holiday, 2018. Two weeks before Christmas, I went to the doctor and had a blood test, as you do as a man of a certain age. And a week before Christmas, my doctor rang me and the news wasn't good. I had um, a very high level of um, prostate-specific antigen, which is a sign of prostate cancer. Mm. Um, It was much higher than it should have been. And... Nobody knew why that would be, uh, but certainly I was on a fast track suddenly uh, to being tested and then uh, dealt with as a prostate cancer, uh, as someone who had prostate cancer. So I went through the uh, MRIs and the scans and and, uh, all the rest of it, and I did indeed have prostate cancer. Um, It was an unusual presentation uh, in that uh, although what they found when they did the scans wasn't uh, it hadn't spread through my body. It was still in the prostate area. The PSA levels suggested it should have spread. Mm. Uh, so they couldn't find it in the rest of the body, which was great, but they were worried about that anomalous level. So that was me. That was my Christmas. Um, when I started at the Herald, I was going through all that. Anyway, something had to happen. Was I going to do um, just hormone therapy and see what happened? Was I going to have uh, radiotherapy? Was I going to have surgery? And I went through a process of trying to work out what the best things would mm. be and I found that extraordinarily difficult. I could imagine. Yeah, well one of the things was that I, here was me, I'm a middle class person, educated, I'm, I realised that the doctors I was um, in the hands of all assumed that I'd been to Dr Google and I knew an awful lot about this and I was making already in a position of making informed choices and actually I didn't do that. I'm terrified of Dr. Google. I, I don't look. Um, mm. My personal view is that you could 
whatever symptoms you think you have for anything, if you look them up on Google, you'll probably find you've got cancer. You know? <laughs> yes, pretty much how it works. You're going to die yeah, soon. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I just, no, I don't want to do it. Yeah. And that's a denial thing um, in one sense, but it's also us. It's also it was me saying, I want you, you're the experts. I believe that you know what you're doing, um, and I want you to advise me well. Yeah, and it took a little time to work out that actually I meant that, I yeah. think. Um, but it also, um, I realized again that they were not going to make the decision for me. Um, they, were going, they were going to help me, uh, inform me, but it had to be my decision. Um, and in the end, um, I uh, chose the surgery. Yeah, but what I did was I wrote a, a diary of the process, mm. and um, it was a six-part diary. Um, I wrote it out as one long thing and then divided it up, I guess. Um, and I didn't publish that diary while I was going through it. You know, I had the surgery at the end of February, um, and the diary started publishing pretty much at that point. Uh, so at the point where I'd had the surgery and I was out of the surgery and still alive and they'd cut it all out, you know, I said they had, um, that my diary started saying, "Oh gosh, I've got this," and mm. um, then over successive weeks, uh, readers got the rest of the story uh, as, okay. I recu- as I recuperated. And uh, well, that fills in the timeline for me because yeah. it, because for me, uh, yeah, it came later than I like. I remember it, and it came later than 2017. So I was yes. like, always well, the difference. So that's a that's a good explanation. There's there's two things there um, that I'm interested in exploring. The first is the decision to publish at all, to write anything mm. about the journey. Because for men in New Zealand, this is an issue that we might inform our employers about, we might inform our closest colleagues and some family, but it stays relatively private. It, it, it does. Um, I do know for me, because I am a writer, I turn to writing as a way of, um, uh, it was one of the things I did to try and deal with it. Um, so I know there was a kind of therapeutic value mm. in it for me, if you like. And while I say I didn't read Dr. Google, I didn't read the medical stuff, I certainly read a number of literary writers uh, on dying. You know, I read Clive James um, because he had cancer and was meant to die pretty quickly, and he didn't, and he got out two or three volumes of poetry and a couple of volumes of essays. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I read him. I read Jenny Diskey, who, who, had, uh, who wrote about her cancer up to the last three weeks, which is... Um, I mean, I'm not there, um, but I imagine... And that's through the chemotherapy and everything, which I haven't done. Um, you know, I imagine that's a really difficult thing to do. Yeah, but Jenny Diskey is a superb writer, and I, I actually took a lot from these writers mm. uh, about how you, you, you manage this. And I thought, well, that, uh, could I do that? Could I do that for, for others? Um, so it wasn't just for me. Obviously, it was for readers. Um, and... So I tried to interrogate how the fears I had um, and what it was like to be the patient in that process. Um, and my wife was a valuable reader, and she told me on a couple of occasions, you can't publish that, that's too gruesome. <laughs> and she was probably right. <laughs> there are some gruesome things uh, which are not in the story <laughs> um, or just too personal. Yeah. Um, but I know from my mailbox, I know there were so many people who got 
a lot from it. I know at the hospital that um, in the years since and the regular checkups I've been doing that um, nurses and doctors have said to me that was you're the guy who wrote that stuff that's valuable. I think there's been some teaching from it mm. because they don't often get to hear from a patient um, who's taken the trouble to be articulate about it and actually turn it into a story that is coherent and that's what I tried to do. Um, and I've heard from so I've heard from a lot of men. Thank you for expressing how I felt. Uh, thank you for explaining it. And I've heard from a lot of uh, partners, wives, daughters. Um, not actually, I'm thinking I don't think I've heard from any sons. Yeah, but but the women in in men's lives who've said you've explained to me what my husband, my father, couldn't tell me, couldn't talk about, um, and that's been so valuable. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a writer, that's just, you think, gosh, thank you. Um, I'm so pleased, you know, so that, that helped. Yeah. You don't often hear that it helped, but that helped. That's really good. That that means, then, that you were facing questions of mortality and exploring yeah. those questions while you're putting other stories out into the, into the Herald with absolutely no indication publicly that you're going through those questions. Those are big questions to face while you're doing other work. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, doing the other work is also therapeutic, of yes. course. <laughs> Getting on with your normal life, and you do want to do that. Uh, so, yeah, so that's true. It would be remiss of me not to mention that if you're a man of certainly of 50 and possibly even earlier, a regular blood test uh, is terrific thing to do. My GP did the finger test, and she didn't feel anything. Mm. Um and when I went back to her after I'd been diagnosed you know, from the blood tests and the MRI, uh, she said, do you mind if I have another feel? Because I, I want to try and feel how, what I missed. So I said, yes, I knew she was going to ask that. <laughs> but I thought, well, yeah, um, that's got to happen. Because a lot of people think the finger test will be enough. Um, and it's invasive and, you know, you don't want that. But actually the blood test is not invasive, mm. apart from it being a needle and, you know, just a quick jab in your arm. Um and uh, that's the much more reliable uh, uh, test to get done. There are doctors who are reluctant to do it, um, and the reason for that fundamentally is that if you are diagnosed with prostate cancer, the best treatment might be just to wait. Now, it's not something that necessarily requires urgent attention. Now, best to, may, might be best just to monitor it and wait. So they don't want to overwhelm the system with panicking men going, I need, a, I need my prostate ripped out now, when they, well, they actually don't need that. I understand that, but uh, it's better to know than not know, I think. Yeah, I yeah. think so. You know, this, is, this is cancer. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you're waiting and monitoring it knowledgeably uh, in the care of a medical professional, that's great. If, if you're just finding it, uh, getting up half a dozen times in the night and you know, worrying and you don't know what's going on, uh, that's not great. I agree. Putting yourself in the hands of the experts. I mean, I'm only 45, and I I get it. I get the test every now and then already. Yeah, because uh, no, no, I think it's wise. The telling thing for me was I did a radio interview about it um, a year or so later, and there was a, 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 a the doctor who was the specialist who was on after me. The interviewer said to him at the end, um, "What do you think?" And he said, "I'm getting mine when I turn 40." Yeah, it's, it's totally worthwhile. And again, you're right. It only it only involves taking some blood out, right. which you can get done when you're getting other blood tests for various Indeed. other things as well. 
in any meaningful story or any meaningful writing, it doesn't end when you publish because there's all the follow-up, there's That's the true. interviews, there's the conversations that people are going to want to have with you because you've done you've done this. So you've put something very personal out. What did the follow-up look like? Yeah, on the on the prostate yeah. stories. Uh, so um, I had a number of conversations with the Prostate uh, Society, I think they are, and I did, did a bit of stuff for them. Um, I didn't get too involved in that. Um, I really admire what they do, and there are, there are, there's a whole range of fundraising and promotional activities they do, and I, I, it's really impressive. Um, but I kind of felt I've, my contribution has been in the writing. Um, I'm, I'm not going to spend my life being a prostate advocate now. I'm going to be a, continue to be a journalist and writing about other things as well. And that's an, you've got to have your life on an even keel or try to, be, <laughs> try to have it on a reasonably even keel. So that's partly that. Um, but uh, I have done a few talks uh, on on having the cancer. Um, doing another one right now, um, <laughs> and that's fine. You know, that's yeah, yeah. Because I and I, I get you. You wouldn't want to be known as the cancer guy. No, that's And you've right. got this yeah. whole body of work and so much life left in you. Obviously, to write yeah. great, great work. It would have been very easy for this to railroad your career. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I. I I think I'm in remission. Um, I had the surgery. It was what my surgeon called a radical, radical uh, prostatectomy. Cut everything out and everything around it. It was all good. Then a year later I did, no, two years later I did, um, I I went on to hormone therapy then and then eventually I had some radiotherapy. And the radiotherapy was, I found terrible, just terribly depressing, lying there on this machine that goes around you twice and just you don't want to think about what actually is happening that you've got this enormous machine going around you looking for something that's trying to kill you you just don't want to start thinking about that and it's hard not to think about that Mm. so I found that really depressing and difficult and it was 33 days in a row not counting weekends of that incredibly debilitating by the end of it it's not painful or anything it was just the process of going through it mentally was, was tough um, it'll come back one day, I think. So I always say I have cancer. I don't say that I used to have it. I think I have it, um, but it's not detectable uh, at the moment. That's a that's a really interesting approach because you get the people who want to. It's not live in denial. It's uh, it's probably another word or, or phrase for it. But you're along with my friend Di Henwood. You're the you're the next person I've heard who's accepted it that that's yeah. just the way that it is. Yeah. And it's not that uncommon, you know, and, and particularly prostate cancer. I mean, they they say that that most men die with it. It's not what you die of, but it's you you have it when you die. In, in other words, and that's that goes to that point that we made before that yeah, just because you've got it doesn't mean you have to do anything about it yeah. um, I'm lucky I have the illness I have which may or may not be the thing that kills me in the end is not painful I don't have to live with pain because of it um, lots of cancers are painful mm. and maybe this one will become painful one day but I'm lucky about that pain's so debilitating Yeah. I don't want to go too deep on on this angle but as a middle-aged white male, I'm used to re- being in control and yeah. having a relative amount of, of power. And then uh, anything that causes us to face our mortality, uh, 
can throw the wheels off a little bit. Um, had you reflected on, uh, and obviously as a person of faith, I have a belief system and there's absolutely no angle here. Coming into it, had you reflected on your mortality much before that? It's, a, it's a, such a good question. I, I think the answer is probably no. Um, uh, can I remember anything that happened <laughs> in terms of my mental state before I was diagnosed? <laughs> it might be a false memory. Um, I certainly know that um, when I was diagnosed, I one of the things I tried to think about was, well, now you've got to make every day count. You know mm. that old cliche? Yep. Um, everybody knows it. It's easy to say. What does it mean? Mm. I struggled with it. I struggled with the idea uh, that actually when I get up today, I've got to do something that makes it count and it's got to be special. Um, I've always liked to think that I was a person who made every day count. I've always not wanted to waste days. Always, what is the thing I'm going to achieve today? I've always been that kind of person. So you're asking yourself a deeper question than that. When you, It's not just, am I going to be busy today? Because it's not literally making every day count. You've got to recognize, um, I'm really tired today. Mm. Today will count by my uh, looking after myself and resting. You know, <laughs> you know it's just that. Um, and that's a little change for me, I guess, because I do get more tired than I used to. And is it the cancer? Probably just age, actually. Um, but you do you do have to remember to try to look after yourself um, and to enjoy yourself. And those things are in conflict. I, I, I drink. I drink for pleasure, but I know that I'm not really looking after myself when I'm having that pleasure. <laughs> you know, so there's a, you, they're, they're not always the same thing. Um, however... There are some things I know I want to do um, in the time, whatever time I have left. I like to think I'm I'm a little bit wiser than I used to be. I like to think I'm I'm more able to uh, balance information and use judgment and experience to, uh, and not get not jump to conclusions so quickly. And all those things that add up to wisdom or something. I like to think I'm a little bit better at that than I used to be. Now, but I also know that I'm not mentally as... as uh, I don't quite have the comprehensive mental skills. I wrote a book last year about the Auckland City Mission's new building home ground and the people who work and live in it. And it's a magnificent thing. And I was very proud of doing that. And I met extraordinary people and all the rest of it. But it was a hell of a job yeah, adding no that book to my regular life. Um, and I did it uh, alongside my full-time job. Um, you know, and that was really tough. And I, one of the reasons I did it, I, mean, I did it because I wanted to do the project um, and honour the building um, and the people. Uh, but I also wanted to see if I could do that. <laughs> um, and it was harder than I expected it to be. So I've got to learn from that. Uh, mm. If I want to write another book, how am I going to fit that I can't just do it alongside my regular life I'm going to, to make room for it somehow and I do want to write more mm. books so uh, there are those considerations yeah, there's lots of lots of reflections in there coming yeah. back to the idea of making every day count which I, I hear from a lot of people who have yeah. faced their mortality in some way or other just to, to reflect back a little I think a great way to see that too especially on those days when you're tired and uh, people can, if they're tired or they're feeling pain on those days, can feel like they've failed in that regard, yeah, yeah. as opposed to understanding that every day counts simply because it's a gift. So that day just being there counts. And the, 
if anything, it should just be a growth in our ability to look at it and to see the gift, even when it's not great. Mm. Uh, that's what makes that day count, the fact that we were grateful that we were breathing. We have a, 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 a saying in my family, uh, which I'm sure lots of people have, which is that you never regret a swim. It's true. <laughs> um, and Yeah, and, and isn't it true? It is true. Everybody knows it's true. When you hear it, it's true. And it's probably not just true about swimming. <laughs> so... You know, making every day count is also about saying to yourself, if there was that thing you thought you might do today um, and you're going to enjoy doing it, um, actually do it. <laughs> Tomorrow you could do it, but do it today because you you know you'll enjoy doing it. Um, and that might be, I was going to do that stuff in the garden or I was going to build that thing or I was going to read that book or I was going to go for that bike ride or have that swim. Have more swims is probably a pretty good life lesson. Yeah, I like that. For me, it'd be going out and walking more. Yeah, uh, I love go. I yeah. love walking. Yeah. If only we didn't have to face our mortality to come to that realisation, uh, yeah. to live like that. Uh, I um, One of the things I did, which I wrote about in the Cancer Diary, was um, we have a little uh, batch in the middle of the North Island uh, near Turangi. Yeah, so we do a lot of stuff in the bush. Um, and I went for a long bush walk. Yeah in the midst of wrestling with what am I going to do mm. yeah. and it was fabulous it was you know the the birds all came out for me and <laughs> <laughs> it was a beautiful day um, yeah it was so lovely and and uh, actually every time I go for a bushwalk I think do more bushwalks you know you never regret a bushwalk either no you don't it's election year Simon and whilst your focus is not parliament I would imagine an election year is still going to have an effect on what you do what you're thinking about what you're writing about what's Absolutely. it going to look like over the coming months so um, I will approach the election as I've done the previous ones living in Auckland as uh, what is the Auckland perspective on the election so I will uh, in previous elections I've done an election diary uh, where I've gone to lots of uh, meetings and tried to kind of follow it at that level so I'll come at it from that uh, uh, perspective I really like going to political meetings um, and uh, I love being able to write them up having a, a vehicle to do that with um, and a lot of the things that I do write about, uh, climate change, transport, housing, uh, education, uh, they are all national uh, political issues anyway, so there'll be lots to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it, um, but I'm also dreading it because I think we're going to see a level of unpleasant behaviour in this election uh, from the edges of our society uh, that we haven't really seen before in an election and that's going to make it all tougher. Yeah, I agree. As someone who's looked forward to the election every single three years, uh, since I was first able to vote, mm. this is probably the first time that I've been dreading it. I think I think there's some things that we've lost as a nation. Thinking about, in closing, thinking about the future of media, journalism in Aotearoa, New Zealand, what does it look like? <laughs> what do you think? Um, I honestly don't know. I mentioned before about the steady decline of the numbers of journalists at Metro, and that that wasn't about Metro. Metro was doing pretty well, but the company as a whole, uh, advertising is just was just reducing and reducing, and advertising support for most media is extremely important financially. Yeah, so there are issues there. So a lot of media is in trouble because its uh, paid readership is precarious. Um, and actually 
print media has stopped reporting circulation numbers, uh, which is the number of people who buy the thing, uh, and now talks about readership, mm. uh, which is uh, a measure uh, of how many people they think are reading, uh, and they're very different things. People are transitioning to online uh, consumption of, of media and uh, away from the main TV stations, the main newspapers and, and so on. But the transition isn't accompanied by the flow of revenue. Um, so I work for a, a publication that has a, a paywall. We call it premium membership, premium subscription. Uh, so to read me, you've got to be a member of uh, the... You've got to subscribe to the Herald online. Having said all that... There are far fewer of us working now than there were 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. Yeah. But there's an awful lot of really good journalism around. I'm, I'm impressed all the time uh, in uh, magazine work. I've worked at Metro. I'm fond of that. North and South, New Zealand Geographic, uh, The Listener and elsewhere. Um, online sites, um, newsrooms, spin-off, places like that. Yeah. And in the mainstream uh, in the traditional mainstream outlets, I think um, there are so many good journalists. Uh, I'm very proud to uh, be part of a uh, of a profession that that is doing really good work. Um, it's just harder. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'd like to put my hand up here and say I support the paywall too. Okay. I think the Herald has um, benefited from it. I think the journalism coming out because of the paywall has has deepened. I think it's it's been a really good step. The public though. We got addicted to the free stuff. Yeah. I remember uh, going to, I think it was Big Boys Toys, and someone tried to sell me a Herald subscription at the time. Right. And I was able to read everything online for free. And I said to him, why would I pay for this when I can just read it for free? So I think we had too long we were able to get it for nothing. And oh. now we're having to relearn what generations before us have had to do, which is pay to get it. That's right. It, it, it's um, it's a great shame. you Technology and society don't progress evenly, mm. and sometimes they go down the wrong paths. And the idea of information will be free uh, turned out, I think, to be a wrong path. Simon, it's been a pleasure. I really do appreciate the time that you've taken, and thank you for putting yourself in the conversation as you have, and for touching on a topic that that is that is personal. I really appreciate it. I think uh, that sort of journalism, we've told your story in a way that impacts uh, so many other people because they're going through the same thing, is going to have a, a good positive flow-on effect for years. So well, thank you. I hope you're right, and thank you. It's been a pleasure. Nga mihi nui, Simon. Thank you so much for generously taking the time to sit down for this kōrero. And thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series, and a big thanks to you for giving some of your precious time to listen. I really appreciate it. Also a thanks to Josh Couch, Sam Donkin, and Steph So Lovemal for producing this podcast. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who would love to hear it. And remember to follow in your favourite app to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media. We demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and you want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up and the coffee's on us. Mm